Hello, and welcome back to the Can Do MS podcast. The next three Can Do MS podcasts are part of the Young Adult series. They will feature Channing Barker, a young adult living with MS. In part one of the series, we will hear from Channing and her mother, Patty, about what it was like growing up as a young adult with MS. Along with Channing and Patty, we have psychologist Dr. Roz Kalb with us. She'll be leading today's podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, thanks very much. So uh, I am Roz Kalb, and uh, I've been a psychologist in MS for 30 years. And a few years ago now, I had the pleasure of meeting Channing Barker and her mom when Channing was first diagnosed with MS. And I'm honored to be having this conversation with the two of you. Um, Channing, could you just introduce yourself and, and explain a little bit about who you are and your background? Yes, thanks, Ross. Yes, my name is Channing, and I was diagnosed with MS when I was a teenager. I was 16 years old, and um, I'm now 30 years old. <clears throat> I live in Fayetteville, Arkansas, which is um, the northwest part of the natural state, um, and right now I am the communications director for my county government, um, and I've come a long way as far as um, from my diagnosis until now, and I'm really excited to be talking to you guys today about where we are um, in relationship as another daughter, and also um, just how far we've come with this disease. It's a very exciting time. Thanks, Channing. And Patty, could you also introduce yourself? Yes, hi, I'm Patty, and I'm Channing's mother and Madeline's mother as well. And um, I'm not going to tell you my age, <laughs> but I uh, currently am the hospital relations director for the major blood provider for this region. I keep myself very busy with that. I live about two hours away from Channing now in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I volunteer for the MS Society. I'm the president of the Oklahoma Community Leadership Council and volunteer in various ways for the society and advocacy and fundraising as well. Well, thank you both for all that you do. And clearly you have very busy lives uh, apart from uh, dealing with the challenges of MS. So again, thank you for having this conversation with me. Um, so I'm, I'm going to start with Patty first. And I just want to ask you, what was your relationship with Channing like when she was a teenager uh, prior to her MS diagnosis? I think our relationship was rather unique. I had been a single mother since the time Channing was in kindergarten, and her sister is six years older than she is. So we had a really unusually strong bond. Um, we talked about a lot of things. We were very transparent with each other. We called ourselves the Barker Girls, our own little gang. Um, but it wasn't unlike a typical mother-daughter teenage relationship when, you know, she's spreading her wings and gaining independence. But again, I think it was unique in the fact that we were very close to one another. At the time Channing was diagnosed, her sister obviously was in college. Actually, I think she might have been in her master's program at the University of Arkansas at that point. So it, we had many years, just the two of us and our dogs at home together. So it was a really unique relationship. I think we've always had kind of a unique bond 
our personalities are very similar, which can be a blessing and a curse at times. Um, but I do really cherish the friendship and relationship that we have, especially as it's evolved into uh, adulthood. Uh, hearing you talk reminds me of some of the years uh, when my daughter was a was a teenager, and some of what you said rings true, and, <laughs> and some of it was a little different. Uh, Channing- it was. It's funny because there were, you know, every teenager has to spread their rings, wings and uh, discover their independent spirit. But she could never lie to me. She only tried once, and it was about a babysitting party. Well, a party she had while babysitting, I should say, with the permission of the people she was babysitting for, but not the permission of her mother. And somehow I just looked at her and knew. So that was the one and only time that that happened. Uh, That is remarkable and a very close bond, if you could pick that up. Um, Channing, is there anything you want to add to the description of what life was like before your MS? I think it's important um, as we go into this discussion to recognize that we were the best of friends and we are still very, very close and very, very good friends. Um, And that was very unique, not just for our situation, but I think for a lot of situations for teenagers when they're in high school, um, we just had a very um, admirable respect and trust for one another, and that carries still to today. So, so Channing, when you were diagnosed, did any any of that change, or how was that closeness and bond affected when you both heard this news about MS? Ross, I think it actually strengthened our bond because we became closer as we were going through these trials and tribulations because it really was the two of us against the world. You know, we have a team of doctors and specialists that were helping us along the way, but my mom was my greatest advocate while I was unable to walk and was laying in the hospital bed. I know that she was outside the room and trying to understand and research. I can't imagine now as a 30-year-old, I can't imagine what she must have been going through. Um, I'm not a parent right now, but I cannot fathom the heartache and the anxiety of watching someone you love so dearly go through what I was going through. Um, And so I know that she was taking a lot of that upon herself, whether it be researching or trying to find out what doctors were talking about. Um, So I, I in, in this stage of my life, I think it strengthened our bond um, because we were able to go in through, you know, the, this very, very uh, uncertain situation together. It really strengthened us. Uh, so, Patty, given what you said about how close you were and you basically knew what each other was thinking or what uh, Channing was trying to hide, um, so what was this like for you when you hear Channing's diagnosis? So as a mother, I'm sure you had all kinds of feelings, worries, and fears. Did you keep some of those to yourself? Did you share them all? What what happened for you when you heard the diagnosis? Well, first of all, I want to tell you how in awe I was of her. I started seeing Channing in a different light. I always knew she was a bright light. I've always called her my chan shine instead of sunshine. And 
seeing her smile never leave her face, even when she had a spinal tap headache, whatever those are called, and her pain level was remarked as being a nine, she was always smiling and she was always concerned about how other people were doing who came to see her. So not seeing that aspect of her character on a daily basis and seeing that face, the way she faced adversity, put my respect for her as a person uh, on a different level. But when she was diagnosed at Stony Brook, I remember the very moment like it was yesterday and she got in the van and she's texting all of her friends. I have MS, I have MS. And she was literally excited about it. I remember my feeling looking at her and I said, you heard what they said, right? And she said, yeah, I have MS. And I said, and you know, that's not curable, right? And she's like, yeah, but mom, I don't have a brain tumor. I'm not going to die. At least now I know what I have and I can face it head on. I said, you know, she said, I, I, mom, everybody has something and this is just my something. And then she went back to texting and chatting and laughing. And I just sat there in that van shaking my head like no adult that I know would react that way. But this is, this is Channing and it, it carried on when she got home and she marched her happy self over to the MS Society office and started a walk team and got involved. And honestly, I just followed her lead. But um, I was petrified in the moment. But watching her, I had to follow her lead because I was not going to steal her joy or steal the confidence that she had or the faith that she had. I wasn't going to do that. So I, it was easy for me to follow her lead. Interesting. Um, the teenagers, I think, sometimes bring to life crises like this a different vantage point than adults do. Um, and so excitement at knowing finally what the answer was, but also not having the full perspective of what the future can bring allowed Channing, it sounds like, to to just see this as the next step, next phase, something to share with your friends. And you, meanwhile, Patty, were having to think as a mom and figure mm-hmm. out uh, what some of the next steps should be. I want to back up for a minute because in your introduction, Channing, you you talked about what your new full-time job is, um, but your mom's description of your early MS makes it clear that at the very beginning, you were having some very, very significant, disabling, severe symptoms. Could you describe um, what your MS was like in that early time after your diagnosis? So I, um, I'll back up and talk about how I really knew something was wrong. Um, January 24th of 2006 was the day I had my very first MS symptom that I could physically notice. Mom will say that it was even before that with fatigue and with, um, you know, you took the ACT. Yeah. Mom will back up and say that it was really when she could notice my fatigue in the 
you know, uh, late fall of 2005. But I remember very specifically because I was cheerleading at a basketball game and I couldn't um, jump or kick. I had to have my my cheer squad take me down from a, a stunt that we were in because I couldn't feel my body. Um, and then from that point on, it was a series of spinal taps and testing and IVIG therapies. And I just couldn't, I couldn't feel my body at first. I had numbness all down my right side of my body. Um, and then it started going from my stomach all the way down through my leg. And then that just turned into complete weakness and an inability to walk. Um, and that feeling, everybody who lives with MS knows this feeling that you suddenly lose power over your leg and, or your legs. And it's, it's this cringe factor when you're trying to curl your toes and you're, you're working so hard to do that and you can't curl your toes. And it's such a simple task and your, your brain is telling your body to do this and you're putting out so much energy to do something so simple. And at 16, you feel like an idiot because you don't know what's happening to your body and suddenly you can't curl your toes. Suddenly you can't dance or kick or point your toes because you've been a dancer your whole life. And this is, this is just second nature to you. And those symptoms were the most seen. Those are the physical apparent ones that people can notice from the outside. Um, to me, I think the fatigue was the, was the largest symptom that I've had and struggle with today. But as a 16-year-old in high school, no, you don't want to say no to anything, right? You want to keep going. And I was very active. I was in dance. I was in cheer. I was in student council. I was in faith-based group, groups. Um, I was in leadership councils. I didn't want to slow down. And so this disease stopped me from moving. And that was the most physical apparent symptom. And to me, that was when I knew something was wrong, was that I couldn't keep up with that 24-7, 365 lifestyle. Well, we're glad to hear that a lot of those symptoms improved, um, and we'll hear more about the ups and downs you've experienced, but but now we know you're working full-time and active again, and so we're very, very glad to hear that. So at the time of the diagnosis, you suddenly then were surrounded by this healthcare team you talked about. Um, how did the two of you... Uh, Channing, you were a minor at that time, um, and Patty was your mom. So how did the two of you uh, communicate with the healthcare team, interact with them? How did it work? So I'll, I'll start this one out because from just the visuals I have of laying in the bed and having the doctors surround, you know, it's like this, you know, this team that was coming in, you know, analyzing, looking, um, you know, touching my knees, seeing if I could feel certain things, seeing if I was reacting to certain um, tests, neurological tests. And that all that, that spanned from Tulsa, Oklahoma, all the way to Stony Brook, New York, when we were finally diagnosed. And I do say we, because it, it is a team effort when you're going through this. And it's not just one person that's affected when you have multiple sclerosis. I, I just so have this such a strong visual of my mom sitting in the standing up me laying in the chair and her eyes looking at me because she knew so specifically that she didn't want the doctors to talk to her 
she understood the language. Mom's been in healthcare and the healthcare fields for a number of years, um, working in medical sales and then in her current job. So she was understanding this jargon that was completely foreign to me. She wanted them to talk to me, even though I was 16 and in pediatric care, she wanted them to speak directly to the patient and that she was stood up for me when she knew I wasn't understanding something. Because when you're in that position, when you're flat on your back, literally, you're not really able to transcribe all of what's happening. And she knew that. I, th- I, think I always despised um, in healthcare, and I'd worked in intensive care before, I always despised it when doctors spoke about a patient who was laying right there who was perfectly capable of maybe carrying on a conversation or at least listening to a conversation. And they were treated as if they weren't in the room. But I also knew that whatever was happening to her prior to her diagnosis, and then of course afterwards, that this was her disease, this was her body. And I looked at my my role as being her advocate and being the note taker, making sure everything was written down, that questions were written down, but that she was in charge and she was a participant in her health care. That was very important to me. And it also probably selfishly helped me stay calm and helped me disengage a little bit emotionally so that I could be more rational when it came to fighting for her. And I think that it's really important for other people who've gone through this process or who's who are going through this process. Mom was very much an advocate, but she was a partner. She didn't stand behind me or in front of me. She stood beside me. And that's something I look for today in a partner as well. Um, Because she had this huge record of binder folder (laughs) of every test, everything that you could ever imagine. And I've tried to carry that on into my adult life now. But it was very much a partnership. And it was very much a lifting each other up and holding each other's hand as we went through that. And that's really helped me understand my role as a, as a patient in today's um, healthcare field. So thank you both for that. Um, it's very helpful because now six, you're 16 at the time you're diagnosed. You have a little bit of time to uh, get your feet back on the ground, figure out what's <laughs> next. And then all of a sudden it's time for you, Channing, to off to school. And can you tell me, and we'll start with Patty first, but what was it like um, having been so close and walked side by side through all of this to have um, your youngest fairly recently diagnosed with MS head off to college? Petrifying. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I wanted her to have the best college experience ever. And because I certainly enjoyed college, but I also wanted her to take care of her health and place that as a priority. And I wasn't, you know, all that confident that was going to take place in the beginning, because honestly, I started to feel her desire not to be identified as that that girl with MS anymore. Um, she came from a, a, a school that was such a wonderful family kind of guarded community. She'd been in school with some of these kids since kindergarten, and she's still best friends with those girls today. But that community had wrapped their arms around her during this whole time period. Teachers, administrators, 
parents of friends. And now here she goes off into the wild blue yonder. And I was nervous about it. I want, you know, I was, I was like, Ooh, got to let her go, but Ooh, want to make sure she's taking her shots. And, you know, we talked every day. Um, and it was, it was a little bit difficult. It was petrifying. And, and honestly, because our home had been the place where every one of her friends had congregated and there was so much laughter and joy. And when she left, just the empty nest syndrome of, you know, the silence being so deadly, that was hard. Mm-hmm. But then you're sending her off with this um, disease that she's still kind of getting to know. So it was it was a little nerve wracking. Sure. Um, Channing, so a couple of questions related to this. So I'm sure you had the mirror reactions about leaving home, leaving your mom to go to school. So I'd like to hear about that, but I'd also like to hear how you talked about yourself once you got to college. Did you share your diagnosis? Did you ask for any accommodations from the school? How did you make that transition away from home into the school environment? Well, first I'll say that there's not a handbook for how to deal with a diagnosis at 16 and in less than a year go off to a college two hours away from your parents and then um, how to live a social, normal life with a disease that is hard to explain, right? There's not a guidebook for that. So we kind of made up our own and we've had our own trials and tribulations with that. Um, I think leaving, there wasn't really a whole, you know, now that I look back, I don't know that I thought a ton about living with this disease and going to school. It was as my, as I was taught, you know, you move and you press on and you live the life you wanted to live. Well, we went to the, one of the things we did before school started is we went to, they didn't call it the disabilities office. Okay. What was that called? Um, we went to the center for, um, oh my goodness. Oh gosh. I can't remember, but it's like a, an accommodations. Okay. Office. Here, I'll start over. Um, one of the things that we first did when we were looking at schools was we went to the, um, the center for educational access, um, for students on campus, whether it was that we were a Turia campus or when we actually went to the University of Arkansas, I met with them and talked them through what I was going through. And it was a new thing for them. They hadn't really had anybody with this disease. And so again, this disease, as many people know, is not something that's consistently apparent physically. So explaining it to teachers, explaining to other professors or students what you're going through and that you may not look sick, but there's a really good time that your brain is not functioning like it should be. Um, that was really important to us and very important to me looking back. Because I, you needed dorm, uh, dorm access mm-hmm. so that you weren't having to climb stairs all the time. And you also needed testing accommodations. So one of the things that was really important and is still very important is um, staying out of the heat and also um, keeping your fatigue at a low if you can. Um, and this campus is very hilly. It does get very hot in the summer, especially when going into um, you know the fall. And so in order to get a dorm accommodation and not having to use the stairs constantly, I had to use the center for students um, for accessibility. Um, and so that was really important. And I also think I didn't see the need for that 
center, then I look back and see how much it did for me as a someone living with a, a disability. So that was one of the first things that we did when going and looking at schools. Um, Roz, I'm sorry, I have to repeat that other question. I can't remember what it was. Um, how it felt for you to to move away from home, having been walking side by side with your mom through this, was this uh, feeling like an adventure? Did it feel like freedom or did it feel petrifying, as Patty said? <laughs> Mom's really good at um, hiding really how she's feeling. I think that I knew that she was scared, but I think I was more scared of just being away from my best friend. There wasn't a scary thought of, oh, I'm living with this disease and something's going to happen to me. That really didn't really, that didn't really cross my mind a whole lot because I was living so, I was doing so well at that point with this disease. Um, again, it wasn't apparent in my everyday life. So I wasn't having these massive relapses. Um, as a freshman in college, I really wanted to, you know, live the full life. I wanted to go to everything. I wanted to meet new people. I didn't want this disease to, um, slow me down. But, um, after I probably bit myself a little, spread myself a little too thin, I did have an episode my freshman year, a relapse that I did have to, um, Always up. I had to call. I had to call my mom um, and tell her what was going on. And thank goodness that I was close to home and had a good relationship with my doctors, um, and we were able to work that out. It wasn't scary for me to leave home because I was so excited about school. It was scary for me to think about not leaving home, mm-hmm. to think about this disease holding me back. That was scarier to me. And now looking back again as an adult, I think my mother did an extremely wonderful and outstanding job of being a parent and, and giving me this freedom, allowing me this freedom and almost this um, sheltered idea of what I really was dealing with because it hadn't really hit me. I mean, you're kind of living in a utopian world when you're diagnosed because you're it doesn't really sink in, I don't think you don't accept it as a lifelong disease for a while. And I think when she did have that episode her freshman year is when it really sunk into her that this is this is a serious thing. And I I need to face this head on. I remember coming over and getting her, bringing her home for a couple of days. And she went back to school a kind of a changed person. She started at the beginning of each semester giving each professor a folder explaining MS and what her limitations and needs were. And what she told me later was it opened a different relationship with each one of them. And through her entire career here at the University of Arkansas, there was only one professor who was blind and deaf and dumb to the whole situation. I think she developed deeper relationships with them. She was able to be more open and transparent with her sorority sisters and with other people that she met on campus. She, like I said, I I saw that she was tired of being labeled the girl with MS. And so she came over here and tried to not be that girl, not talk about it, and found that, honestly, transparency was the best policy. So, Roz, I'll, I'll say that if that's okay with you, because I don't think I ex- expressed that very well in my, in my, whatever you want to do, my, um, 
when I answer that question. Um, So my freshman year, I really was, was trying to, you know, start over, start new, clean slate. So I was going in, didn't want to be identified as this girl with MS because that had kind of been my, my brand at my senior year of high school, really, when you think about it. And I was fine with that because again, these people had known most of my life and I was perfectly fine with what I was living with. So moving two hours away and living with this disease, I wanted a fresh start. So I did that and I didn't really tell people that I had this disease. And then when I had spread myself too thin and this disease reared its ugly head, I had to take a close look at what I was dealing with and how it affected me and how I was going to communicate that moving forward. Um, and one of those, those, uh, you know, Monday morning quarterback, uh, insights was, Hey, let's, let's make some packets for my, my professors. And even for my friends, let's give a short elevator speech as to what it is I'm dealing with. And those packets included pamphlets about what MS is, how it affects me, what I need from them. Because really when you're talking to a professor, they just need to know, okay, so what is, what does this mean for me and for you and our relationship? How are we going to move forward? How can I make you a better student? How can you make me a better professor? And that opened so many doors, teachers telling me about what they were dealing with, which they never had to do. They opened up to me. Then I had um, very close sorority sisters who opened up to me about what they were dealing with or if they knew someone was dealing with this disease. Um, I even met a sorority sister who lived with MS, who lives with MS. Um, and so it's, it's really been an eye-opening opportunity to find others' stories and what they're going through. That doesn't work for everyone, and I'm very understanding of that, but it worked for me. Well, it sounds as though you had a a really wonderful way of uh, both conveying your needs to other people um, as well as education so they would understand what was going on, and you must have done it in in a very warm and caring way because you encouraged people then to open up to you. So it doesn't get much better than that. Uh, I'm sure you've had some wonderful relationships. Um, the other thing that I, I I was thinking about something you said earlier about going to the accessibility offices before, before you started school. And you said you, as a teenager, new to MS, you didn't really see how that was needed or how that would be helpful. But I don't know, somehow in your wisdom or your mother's wisdom, you did that. And then we're able to see in retrospect how helpful that was and how important. And I just, I would encourage other people to, to take that as a, as a lesson as well, that sometimes um, knowing about what accommodations are available to you, if and when you need them, helps you feel more prepared if you run into difficulty down the line. So I I think doing that sort of on faith at the beginning um, was a very, very smart, wise thing to do. So um, you go. Thank you. I I just really encourage people to do that because if you were visiting campuses and you get a great vibe, that speaks volumes about what your future experience on that campus can be. Uh-huh. If you don't get a good vibe, you might want to rethink that choice. I think that's a terrific advice, actually. 
Um, so you both mentioned this relapse that happened. Um, and I'd like you both to talk about that a little more. Um, Channing, I'm, I'm sure that that first relapse uh, during college was a, was a real eye-opener for you, must have been pretty upsetting in a variety of ways. How did you react to it? Do you remember? I think that there was a real moment of darkness mm -hmm. because I'm going full throttle, going to every party, going to every function, you know, um, trying to make it to class. <laughs> I made it to class. <laughs> Let's preface this. You're trying to go to class and make new friends, figure out how to time, how, what time management is, and then suddenly your life stops because you can't move and you can't feel parts of your body. And it was very dark. I got very sad because I didn't know, does this mean I have to go back to Tulsa and go, go to college home at home, which is fine if it, if it is, if that's what that means. But I really had felt like I conquered this disease and it was a very much a shock and a face-to-face uh, -face with this disease. Reality check. It was a very much a reality check. Um, I realized that I needed to find a counselor on campus. I needed to speak to um, a neuropsychologist. I needed to see what other options there were. And it was part of learning how to be my own advocate, really. But I think going through this pit was part of the first step to realizing I'm the one who's in control, no one else. Do you think you were depressed looking back? Oh, 100%. And because, you know, when, it, when you're diagnosed with this disease, no one really talks to you about the mental health state that you're going to be in. Um, at least they didn't for me. And I don't blame anyone for that because I'm a very peppy, bright person. But the anxiety and the depression that come with this disease are unruly. And that doesn't stop whether you're on medication, whether you're talking to someone. It's... This disease makes you chronically fatigued. You're in your bed five hours on a Saturday because you're just so tired. And I think that that is one of the things that they don't tell you when you're going into college, living with this disease is how tired you're gonna be and you don't wanna miss out on anything. And how do you handle that? And I had been on the same antidepressant for a couple of years at that point. Um, well, we started when when I was diagnosed, yeah. yeah. So there were just so there were definite um, mental states that I was going through. Absolutely, but you learned a lot of coping mechanisms. I think you relied on your faith. This is from my perspective as your mom. I mean, you were talking, which I think a lot of times that's very difficult for people, especially men, who struggle to identify those feelings. And is this valid? Am I weak? What, you know, all the typical feelings that someone goes through trying to identify, why am I feeling this way? And the fact that you channeled that in, the, in ways that worked for you, counseling, medication, you, would, you did try to exercise when you could, and those kinds of things that help your endorphins. It was also this relapse seems like a very much a blur to me because it 
because I don't, I don't really think I understood fully what was happening. I, I didn't understand the stage of acceptance I was at with this disease. Yeah, because it is a, a grief process over what you originally thought your life was going to be. She had a timeline, man. She was, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this at this age, this age, this age. And it interrupts, MS interrupts those things. It doesn't mean that it has to never come to fruition, but it might alter your timeline a little bit. But there's just like with any loss, there's going to be grief that you must go through. Shannon, was there ever any point during that rough spot when you thought you might have to quit college or give up or change the course of things for yourself? Absolutely. Yes. I very vividly remember mom coming to town when I was really struggling and we went to this little cafe that no longer exists. And she said, you know, she would say things like, just give it one more, one more semester. You're not going to, you're not going to quit. You are not going to quit. And I needed that tough love. I needed the, someone to say, you're not going to quit. You are strong. You can do this. Um, you know, you can follow your instinct and what you want to do is quit right now, but wake up tomorrow and we'll talk. We're, you're going to get through this. I was failing a, an algebra class, if I remember correctly. I was really struggling in some classes because I was just not, my brain was not clicking. Um, and you feel like it's completely your fault that that's happening when in reality it was a lot of things, fatigue, anxiety, mm-hmm. really rough depression. Um, but I wanted to stop. I wanted to come home, which is funny that I'm saying this now because that was the biggest fear. It's like, I don't want it. Like, you know, when you're going into school, like, I don't want to quit. I want to go off. I want to be and do and go. And then you know, midway through your first semester, you're like, I'm just going to quit. Like, I can't, I th- I'm throwing my hands up in the air. I'm too tired. I don't want to deal with this. So she had wanted to be a journalist since she was like two and a half when she could talk and stand in front of the television she was the strangest child. She would watch the news and point at the screen and say, I want to do that. I want to do that. And that's all, that's what motivated me to say, no, you're, you're not going to quit right now. You're going to give it one more day, take it one day at a time, finish the semester and then reevaluate. I would have welcomed her home. I wouldn't have judged her, but I just didn't want her to make that decision on based on those feelings at that moment. Mm-hmm. So, Patty, you're you're now in a slightly different role than you were when Channing was 16 and living at home. She's now closer to being that young adult who's who's moved away. When these medical things happen, did your role with the healthcare team change at all at that point? No, not really, unless there was something that I knew was happening to her that she wasn't telling them. That's when I would speak up. Mm-hmm. But I I really did try to remain in the background as the note taker, talk to her before the appointment and just say, okay, what points are you going to bring up, blah, blah, blah. You know, she's changed medication several times. We've, we've talked through that, theorized this, that, and the other. Um, but respected her opinion. I mean, this is, I remember her telling me one time when I probably overstepped, mom, this is my disease. I'm living with this. (laughs) I'm like, okay, point well taken. But you know what? As a parent, and I'm going to, 
you do you do live with this disease because there's not a moment in my day I don't think about how's the heat affecting her today. I wonder if she's having a stressful day at work. You know, all of those things. I wonder if she's getting exercise. I hope she's not exercising because it's too hot outside. You know, all those things are in my head. Not that I'm obsessive, but they do pop into my head. Well, I think we we all know, those of us who have been there, that you don't stop being a mom just because your kid gets older. Uh, the worries get, get bigger, not smaller, because your kids are bigger and dealing with bigger things. So I think you've all navigate, navigated this in a, in a truly amazing way. So let's fast forward to a successful graduation from college. Um, having stayed there and, and finished it out. And now you're living on your own. Um, uh, you're a fully independent adult. You're working full time. You have a, a busy life. So if there's another relapse or any other health issue that happens, um, what has, how does that get managed between the two of you? Well, I generally keep tabs. So when there is a relapse, I will go with her to the doctor. I used to go sit for every MRI, every appointment, and I've kind of backed off that. I don't, if it's just a checkup, you know, we'll go over things so that she has notes in her phone or whatever. I don't always have to be at every appointment. I When she had her first Ocrevus, and her second ocrevus and this latest ocrevus um, infusion, I went balancing my professional life, my personal life with that now, more so than I have in the past. But when there's a bad relapse, I generally will take off work and come stay with her. When she was on television and couldn't drive, I would drive her to work and come. And honestly, I love it over here. So it's not a sacrifice <laughs> for me. But uh, my role now as the mother of a young woman, young professional woman, is what do you need? How can I best accommodate that? And I have to rely on her being honest with me. So I think that that part of our relationship has really changed in the last couple of years as I've grown and figured out my career and tried to manage my health best I could it's become more of a it's become very much a support partner relationship I would say because I have a really good community support here with my partnerships of friends and they do a great job taking care of me and we've had to go through that time of hey you know so and so has this it's okay you don't need to come to the appointment um, I promise because because you have led me on this journey because you have shown me what it what a what a doctor's visit should look like and how I can best repair, I'm ready to take this on. I've been able to find friends who are really good in those fields who can guide me and support me there. Um, that was difficult at first, mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. sure. Um, we kind of both had to tug and pull, and that was tough at times. Um, I thought I was being pushed out, but it really wasn't that. It was just, you know, maturity. It was mm -hmm. just time. And we had to, we had to work through the the growing pains of what it looks like for me as an adult to live with this disease and for her to what the what the role of a mom of someone living with this disease looks like 
And that was not easy at times. And it really, it was hard on our relationship. I think that we've come to a really good spot now where I let her know when things are, you know, when I'm not feeling well. And I think the best thing that she gives me is grace. You know, if I, if we talk on the weekends and she's like, what are you doing? I'm, like, I'm just so tired. You know, this last weekend, it was really hot and I'm tired and I'm just staying in bed. And she gives me this wonderful, you know, grace permission slip to let me sleep and be myself. And that's so loving and that's so necessary and a support partner. So Channing, you've, you've talked about your relationship with Patty now as your mom, but also as a support partner. As you look for another support partner in your life, uh, perhaps a partner or spouse, um, what would you be looking for based on the experiences you've had so far with such a wonderful, loving and supportive relationship? I think my number one um, quality in a person has changed quite a bit from when I was, you know, 16 and I made this list of non-negotiables <laughs> to when I was 22 and made a list of non-negotiables. Um, empathy is my number one quality I look for in a person. I think that you don't have to have gone through a cancer diagnosis or have someone, you know, have a, a loss of a loved one. Um, but I do think having empathy is a huge, huge, huge quality that I look for. I've gone on dates with men who have had a really easy life and that's fine, but they don't understand grief. And that is extremely difficult for me to relate to them. Um, I think that the characteristics, um, I think that, that the grief and struggle um, produces, uh, uh, produces empathy. It produces qualities that I'm attracted to in a human um, because I may not be able to, go to the bathroom by myself one day. I may not be able to walk. Um, I really want them to be able to love me for who I am, whether I'm able to to shower by myself, um, to lift my legs, to whatever it is that I'm having to do to be able to see, drive. I want them to know what, what the worst could look like. But I honestly don't think that's the worst thing that could happen to us. I, I really just look for someone who's loving, who understands what hard times look like. Um, their Christianity is very important to me um, what their faith with a higher spirit looks like, but I really just want to, I, I want a kind, empathetic, compassionate person. Well, and I, I can see uh, either one of you at this point in your lives, finding other partners. Um, uh, you're both loving, you're both very caring people and uh so how would you see yourselves navigating new partners in either one of your lives? Uh, I have found this new acceptance of myself and who I am and where I am in my life. And I am basking in this beautiful acceptance of me being a very independent and um, welcoming human um, on this earth. And if that means someone else joins me in this ride, that's great. And I welcome that. I would welcome it as well. But I look at a relationship as dessert. It's not the entree in my life. I hope to find someone who feels the same way. And because then I think it is cherished and savored even more. Nicely said from both of you. So, so one last question to, to both of you. Um, and I think I'm going to start with uh, Patty on this one. What advice 
would you offer to other young adults and their parents from your very experienced vantage point now? One of the main points as I look back on our experience is arm yourself with knowledge. That doesn't mean get on the internet and surf every link having to do with MS, but arm yourself with good knowledge so that you can speak intelligently or ask good questions during the time you have with your physician. Be honest with one another. Be transparent with other people and manage your expectations of the child of the parent and the parent of the child. Give love unconditionally to one another. Be kind to all of your care partners, the nurses, the techs, the physicians, the physician assistants. Kindness goes a long way, and it can be a very frustrating experience when you're dealing with insurance companies, um, snags when you need a prescription and you have to go through step therapy, whatever. But if you can take a breath and be kind to others, you'll find that you'll get the results that you need. But mutual respect for one another and the position that you're in will lead to a much less stressful experience. I would say respect, mutual respect is really important. I think also acceptance of one another is very important. That goes along hand in hand with respect, but accepting one another for who you are and where you are in that moment. There's no set of standards you have to live by with this disease. Um, I think when you're diagnosed, it's going to look very different um, as a mother and child and as to where you are when you're 20, when you're 25. Every day is different, but We've definitely gone through a um, evolution. Piece of, yeah, there has been an evolution of our relationship with this disease, and it touches every part of our lives. It really does. I think accepting that those spaces are fine and that they're safe spaces to be in. Mm -hmm. It's extremely important to let yourself and your support partner know, your mother, your father, whoever it is, that I know that we're in a rough patch right now. We're going to get out of that. But right now, here's where we are, and I'm okay with that. We're going to get through it. Um, but just that solid line of communication and that it's a safe space to talk freely and openly about that. This respect, this line of empathy, and this acceptance is so important. Well, thank you both very much. Um, I couldn't have asked for a more open or honest conversation with the two of you. Thank you all for being here today. And thank you so much to our listeners. Uh, make sure to catch our next two podcasts in the Young Adult series. You'll hear more from Channing and Roz as they continue their discussion. And a huge thank you to all of our sponsors who make podcasts like this possible. We'd like to thank Biogen, Celgene, Genentech, Sanofi Genzyme, and Novartis for supporting the Young Adult podcast series. For other great resources, check out our website, cando-ms.org. We'd specifically like to recommend the Young Adult Webinars. Mm -hmm.